The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn, if you will, uh, back into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, beginning at verse 15, and reading down through verse 32. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 to verse 32. And just as a reminder, in the previous context, our Lord has shown himself to be the, the superior temple, the dwelling place of God, the resting place of God in, in being Lord of the Sabbath. He's then on the Sabbath gone and healed a man with a withered hand. And we read in verse 14 from our last time, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. We pick up the reading of God's word then in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, with these hard words ringing in our ears, we humble ourselves before you 
and acknowledge our absolute need of you, our absolute need of the blessed spirit who was put upon Christ, who works faith and repentance, regeneration in the hearts of men. Lord, bless us with his work in our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's now been several weeks, I think three weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. A word of uh, introduction or reintroduction to bring us back to the context. We're in that phase of Matthew's Gospel where the growth of the kingdom is going forth through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And our Lord has gone to great pains to remind the people of the nature of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that has been introduced by his coming to earth, his incarnation, and by his preaching, his teaching, his healings, and doing his mighty works. That is to say, he's come to bring a kingdom that is not of this world, which explains why we see such opposition to him from those who are in the world, because they don't recognize the Messiah who is stood before them. They have their minds set upon a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom, And therefore, when he comes, not only did they miss him, but some stubbornly refused to receive him, while they even, as we read in this passage, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God. Our Lord has told his disciples that his ministry, their ministry, will produce opposition. He told them in chapter 10 they're going to be persecuted. He told them that his ministry will set father against son and mother against daughter. He pronounced those judicial woes upon the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, where he had done all his mighty works and they had rejected him in spite of the evidence. And yet we saw this same one, rejected by men, still command and invite people to come unto him, all who labor and are heavy laden. And that very one who tells people to come unto him tells us at the beginning of chapter 12 that he is the very epitome, the highest expression of the temple idea. One greater than the temple was in them. It's the dwelling place of God. The meeting place of God and man was not the temple. It was him. And that he had come as the Lord of the Sabbath to provide rest for his people. And that rest was immediately seen then by him healing the man with the withered hand. And yet people hated him for this. They hated him. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Friends, this is the Lord who is before us today. He is spoken of here in this text as a tender, compassionate, loving, and yet mighty Savior. And it's, it's everything to receive him, and it's everything to reject him. That's the Savior that is before us this morning. 
In verses 15 to 20, we read of that, uh, 15 to 21, sorry, we read of that tender but mighty Savior. A tender but mighty Savior. And then in verses 22 to the end of our section, verse 32, we read about the rejection of Christ in the unpardonable sin. Sobering stuff is before us. There is a tender but mighty Savior. We've seen, we pick up the text in verse 15, where Jesus becomes aware of the plot to assassinate him there in verse 14. He withdraws from that area, but his withdrawal is met by what? By masses of people following him. We read, and many followed him. The reaction of the masses is the very opposite of the reaction of the Pharisees that we'll see in a minute. And what does Jesus do for the masses? He healed them. And many followed him and he healed them all. His ministry continues. His ministry to the poor and needy continues. But it's a ministry that he wants to conduct with discretion. Remember that because we'll come back to it in a moment. He tells them, don't make it known what I'm doing, for obvious reasons, because it brings about the kind of opposition we see in the text. But nonetheless, his ministry of the kingdom continues in preaching, in healing, and doing good. And we're told in this text that that ministry was to fulfill a prophecy, a prophecy from Isaiah 42, given some 800 years or so, prior to the coming of Christ. Verses 18 to 21 is a quote from Isaiah 42 and the first three verses. Now, those of you who know the prophecy of Isaiah will know that this quotation here is one of the servant songs found in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, uh, sorry, 42, 49, 50, and 52, we have four servant songs in Isaiah. Songs about the servant of the Lord who is coming to bring salvation, but yes, he will come also to suffer. Christ's ministry, particularly the character of it, what it looks like, was to fulfill this prophecy. God foretold to his people. This is oh so very important for our understanding of the unpardonable sin. He told his people, when Messiah comes, this is what he will be like. This is what he will do. Don't miss him when he comes. Part of the old covenant scriptures were these words found in verses 18 to 21. What are we told then about this servant of the Lord? It's a remarkable description of him. If we could summarize it, we could say it in this way. He is the chosen, spirit-filled, tender, caring savior who brings justice and hope to the nations. The chosen, spirit-filled, tender and caring Savior who brings justice and hope to the nations. If we put it like that, friends, who in the world would reject a Savior like that? Who in the world would turn their back upon such a one? 
Who in the world would not find this kind of saviour pleasing and attractive? And yet it's clear that some did not, verse 24. But others who knew their affliction, who knew their struggle, who knew their need, did find him attractive. Not necessarily all of them savingly so, but they found him attractive. There was something in him. We read, many followed him. Many followed him. Those who knew their weakness and failing and sinfulness and need, they came to him. Verse 15, verse 22, a demon-oppressed man was brought to him. The needy received him. Those who thought they had no need did not receive him. What does the prophet Isaiah say about the Lord? Well, first of all, it's not Isaiah speaking. It's God himself. It's the Father. And he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This is the Lord speaking, and we're reminded, Numbers twenty three nineteen that God is not a man that he should tell a lie. That what is said of our Lord here is absolute objective truth. This is Jesus. If your Jesus does not measure up with this Jesus, your Jesus is wrong. Plain and simple. This is what the Father says of his Son. First he says, he's my chosen servant. That's really important to us, friends. It tells us there is, at least in, in, in outlook, there is no distinction, no separation to be made between the, the mind and the heart and the mission of the Father and the Son. No distinction to be made. Some Christians struggle with God as their Father and warm to Christ. Some the other way round, they struggle with Christ and warm to the Father. It's important for us to understand in God choosing his son to be his servant, we read of father and son working as one in salvation. Very important. He is the servant chosen by God. Secondly, we see that he is beloved and well-pleasing to God. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Calvin writes, the delight of God's soul dwells in Christ. Eternally so as the Son and in time as Jesus of Nazareth. This one was beloved and well pleasing to his Father. Friends, remember that because there'll come a time where the wrath of God is poured upon this well-pleasing one. And the paradox of the cross and of God's relationship to the Son is that the Son is no less well-pleasing and delighted in by the Father when he hangs upon the cross than when he's doing his work here. The beloved one had the wrath of God poured upon him that we as beloved ones may escape the wrath of God. The third thing we note from Isaiah's servant song is this really very important to our text before us that he is filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. That is to say, Christ's ministry was conducted under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell us that in verse 27. We learn it elsewhere as well. That's to say, friends, his healings, his teachings, his character, his preaching, his obedience, his graces are spirit-wrought. 
Because as well as being fully God, he is also truly and really fully man. And as fully man, the spirit dwelt in him, came upon him at his baptism in order that he might conduct his ministry. Christ's ministry is conducted under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Which is why fast forwarding to the end of our text, it's so dangerous to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But what is the servant's character? We found out about him here in verse 18, some things that God speaks about him. But we also hear about his character and his activity. The first thing we notice is that he brings his kingdom in and he is one who is not quarrelsome or loud. Not quarrelsome or loud, verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. Christ establishes the kingdom of heaven not by noise or by force or by shouting or by coercion. He's not insisting on his opinion. It's not by sword, by argument or even by education, it's by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit. It is not after the manner of some who think that shouting loudest will win the day. It just isn't so. In accordance with this, he is tender, verse 20, tender towards those who are injured. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He's gentle. He's kind. He's compassionate. In Christ's time, they used reeds for many things. But a reed with a weakness in it, a break or a bend, what happened to it? It's discarded. It's thrown on the fire. It's, it's set aside. But we read here that Christ does not discard the weak. Christ does not set them to one side because they're not up to snuff. They're not up to the job. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not quench the smoldering wick. Those who are, as it were, hanging on by a thread of life. He's not going to kick them to the curb. Indeed, the passage and the gospel show us that such kind of people... Those in great need, those were the ones who, by and large, received the Savior. Those who knew their need. And and commensurate with this, although perhaps surprising in some ways, tender and gentle, he's the bringer of righteousness. Verse 20, he will not break a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. It's hard to know what this means. It could be a reference to his second coming. His first coming is quiet. It's discreet. He's not going to shout from the rooftops or from the street corner. He's going to tell those followers, don't tell everyone who I am. It's not going to be like that at his second coming, friends. He's going to come on the clouds. There'll be a trumpet blast that the whole world hears. And he'll come again in glory and in power to judge both the living and the dead. He will bring justice to victory. 
And he will proclaim justice and he will proclaim the gospel, yes, even to the Gentiles. The end of verse 18 and the end of verse 21. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and in his name, verse 21, the Gentiles will hope. Salvation, said Isaiah, 800 years before Christ came, salvation will come to the Gentiles. All right, really important. It will go to the Gentiles. Friends, that's the character of our king. I have no hesitation in saying it ought to be our character also. If we are to be like our king, if we are to be Christ-like, this ought to be a reflection of Christians. This is not weakness. This is not taking a step backwards when we should stand firm. This is talking about the way we stand firm, the way we witness, the way, the manner in which we are faithful. Now think on this. If Christ is prophesied in this manner and in many other ways in the Old Testament scriptures, why did the Jews of this passage and of the gospel by and large, why did they not receive him? Humanly speaking, they had every opportunity to receive the Christ. They had centuries of the scriptures. They had the teachings of righteous men. They had the gospel preached to them beforehand through sacrifice and through promise. Why, they even had the Spirit's illuminating power upon them generationally throughout their years. How could they have missed the Messiah? Note the Spirit's work in this passage. The Spirit is front and center. First, the Spirit will reside upon and in Christ, verse 18. Secondly, verse 28, by the Spirit's power, he will cast demons out. And thirdly, it is the Spirit's testimony in and to Christ that the Jews ultimately reject. While Jesus is very much in the foreground, if I can say this with all dignity and honor to our Lord, the Spirit is huge in this picture before us. The Holy Spirit is there because it is by the Spirit's work that Jesus conducted his earthly ministry. It is by the Spirit's power in him that he was tender yet powerful as a man. And it's this rejection of the Spirit's work, this rejection of the Spirit's work, which presents itself as such a serious sin in the passage before us. Because the description of our Lord comes to an end there in verse 21. Verse 22, we see him acting according to that manner, yet people reject him and fall into the unpardonable sin. Yes, the Spirit is upon him. Yes, he's going to do the great works he's done. Verse 22, a demon oppressed, doesn't say possessed. Clearly he was possessed, but he's oppressed. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. That's to say the power of the demon or demons within him made him unable to see and unable to speak. That's the nature of the oppression, the wickedness, the power of evil 
that was at work in this man. The events are these. They bring the demon-possessed man to Jesus, and Jesus heals him so that the man spoke and saw. The demon is cast out, and the effects of the demon are instantly gone. The oppression is broken. The power of Satan in this man is smashed. A great work indeed. A demonstration, surely, of the kingdom of heaven come in their midst. Jesus heals him. The people are amazed. They say, could this be the son of David? It's the right question. Could this one, the healer, be the Messiah? A more clear evidence of Messiah's coming you will not find than what just happens in our text. The forces of evil oppress this man. Christ comes to him and breaks the power of Satan. But, verse 24, but, the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. We, we should nearly fall off our seats when we read that. When we think of what our Lord has just done, bringing Satan and his powers come crashing down in front of him, a shadow, in fact, of what he would do at the cross. And the Jews, the teachers of the Jews, the teachers of the synagogue say, it's by Satan that he casts out Satan. What a staggering thing to say. You see what they're doing? They're attributing the work of the holy and righteous God to the unholy and wicked devil. It's very clear this is the epitome. We live in an age full of calling good evil and evil good. This is the very epitome of calling good evil. Let's understand that. Because that, if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand the blasphemy against the spirit. It doesn't get much more than this. We see Satan's kingdom come crashing down to the ground. They see it. They hear of it. Oh, it's the power of Satan at work. Well, Jesus answers them in very simple ways, two very simple ways. And he shows the complete folly and the darkness of unbelief that they would say something so stupid, so irrational, and it takes nothing for Jesus to disprove their central thesis. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? I mean, really, Pharisees? Are you this dense? The answer is sin, is sin makes them this foolish. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And he gives them another argument, verse 27. It's kind of a gotcha, isn't it? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? As we say in Britain, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. Or as you say, what's good for one is good for the other. If Jesus does it by the power of Satan, well then who are the Pharisees 
casting out demons by. Doesn't take much to disprove their stupidity, does it? But then he comes to the crux of the issue, verse 28, friends. By what power does Jesus preach, teach, heal, and cast out demons? He says this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does he mean? He's saying it's not by Satan's power that he brings an end to the the power of Satan's rule. It's rather by an opposite power. It's by the power of God. That is to say, the kingdom of God has come upon them. It's by the power of his kingdom that Satan is cast down here. Therefore, working backwards in his logic, it is by the power of the Spirit that he casts out demons. If it is by the power by the spirit that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We know the kingdom's come. He told them, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If the kingdom has come, he's saying, then clearly it's self-evident. It's by the power of the spirit that I cast out demons. If this is true, he's saying the kingdom of God has come upon them. That's powerful. Because they're in the very process of rejecting that kingdom and rejecting that king, the longed-for Messiah for whom the Jews had been waiting hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. He has stood before them, and here they are blaspheming God and rejecting him. They attribute to Satan the work of the Spirit. Think on that again, friends. They've got the light of the covenants, the blessed promises of God. They have the law to instruct them and lead them to their Savior. They've got the sacrifices, the temple, the history of God's presence with them. And yes, the Spirit working faith in generation after generation, the Spirit's work in them. And here they are denying that very Spirit by denying Christ. That's why it's such a serious accusation against our Lord. That's why he says there in verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. He says two things here. First, in verse 30, the sin, this sin of attributing his power and his work to Satan is against the entire mission of Christ. Because he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. We knew that's what the Jewish leaders did. They scattered the flock of God. And the second thing he says then there in verse 31 is this. And this is frightful. This sin is terminal. It is unforgivable. Unpardonable. God will not forgive it. What does Jesus mean by this? It's difficult to understand, isn't it? A sin that can't be forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. It's terminal. What is blasphemy? It is thoughts, deeds, or words directed at God, Father, Son, or Spirit, which demean and dishonor him. Whether it's God's name, which people take in vain, God's attributes, which people take in vain, holy cow is blasphemy, just so we know. Holiness is an attribute of God. It is an insult directed at God, intentionally at God. And yet our Lord says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Isn't that interesting? You can blaspheme the Son and still be forgiven. And there's good evidence of that in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul's a clear example of one who did not commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but blasphemed Christ, of course he did, and yet was forgiven and received mercy. Isn't that staggering? We can blaspheme the Savior and still be forgiven. But Jesus says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Let me say what it's not. It's not the sin of impenitence. Some have said the only unforgivable sin is um, uh, an unwillingness to repent. Unbelief. It's clearly not the case, otherwise none of us would be here. Unbelief can be forgiven. (laughs) Certainly. It's not the sin of impenitence. Neither is the blasphemy of the Spirit, because the Spirit is more glory than the Son. It's It's just not that kind of idea. What is it then? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. In this case, it is those who claim or have claimed to be children of God, who by willful deliberate, hardened, contrary to the evidence, deny the work of the Holy Spirit and attribute the Spirit's work to evil. Here we have covenant people who have enjoyed covenant blessings, even some illumination of the Spirit to understand some things of God, And yet they say, Jesus does not work by the power of the Spirit. He works by the power of Satan. It is to deny. It is to say that the work of Christ is a lie. It is to give what is God's and say it is of Satan. Let's take care on this, friends. Many Christians backslide. Many Christians have fallen away and might even in those times say terrible things against Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet God in his mercy preserves and protects them from getting to this terminal point. 
and he turns them again unto himself in mercy. Friends, to deny the Spirit is to have had the blessings of covenant life, the illumination of the Spirit, the one who opens the eyes and the hearts of men, who works regeneration, faith, and repentance, and saying it is of evil. It is a lie. Scripture teaches us the same elsewhere. Ephesians 4.30 speaks of grieving the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 speaks of quenching the Spirit. Acts 5.3 speaks of lying to the Spirit. Acts 7.51 speaks of resisting the Spirit. Think of examples, friends. Cain, Esau, King Saul, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. Hebrews chapter 6 speaks of such people. It says, for it is possible, sorry, Hebrews 6 verse 4, it is impossible, impossible in the case, listen to this, of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. They've tasted the good things of the covenant people. They've tasted the work of the Spirit in their lives, not savingly, but they've had some illumination of the truth, even to the point of confessing Christ, and then they fall away. Irreversibly they do, denying everything they once owned and confessed. That is to say, the work that the Spirit did in them is a lie. It's nonsense. It's trash. It belongs to evil. Christ speaks here both of the sin and of the sanction. To speak ill of the Spirit's life-giving, Christ-empowering work is the sanction unpardonable. One will not be forgiven in this life or the life to come. Friends, the end of those who apostatize is the end of Satan. Satan blasphemed God in the garden by calling him a liar. And the end of those who do the same is to be with Satan. But friends, why, oh why, would we ever think of our Lord in this fashion? Is not the goodness of Christ fully on display in this passage? That the, the masses came to him to be healed, and he healed them. He was prophesied as the tender, caring, compassionate, sensitive one. Why would we reject him? Why would not we rush towards him like the masses did on that day? Many followed him. Will we follow him? He's so wonderful. He's so kind. He's so gracious. He's gentle. He brings peace. He establishes equilibrium. He delivers justice and casts down the oppressor, Satan. Is that not the kind of savior we want, friends? And ultimately one who delivers us from our sins. If you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior here this day, what are you waiting for? Who are you waiting for? None but Christ can satisfy you this day. 
none but Christ. Come to him in faith and repentance. He's one who came quietly and gently, preaching and healing and doing good. At his second coming, he'll come, as I've said, with power to gather his own and himself and to judge those who resist him. That's our king. This is his kingdom. Hold fast to him, will you not? Let's pray. Father, have mercy upon us. Give us grace. Give each one of us grace here, Lord, to hold fast, be immovable and steadfast all our days. May we be like him. May we be that one who is blessed. May we restrain our feet from sin. May we be those who delight in your law. Nourish us, Lord God, like that tree set beside the river, so that we will not be swept away like chaff as the wicked. And may we dwell in your house all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.